This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I have been so looking forward to this conversation. It has been a minute since Ayanna Mathis and I got to hang out and talk about books and writing and her fabulous characters. 12 Tribes of Hattie obviously was a huge sensation. It was not only a BNN Discover pick, it was also a, you know, a little pick of this book club called Oprah. 2.0. <laughs> I think that's, wasn't she calling it Oprah's Book Club 2.0 when it you was were chosen? Oprah's Book Club 2.0 yeah. at that point. Yes. Okay. So we go from Cheryl Strayed to Ian, <laughs> and it was great. And it was an amazing moment because we had a lot of people who suddenly were saying, I want to be part of this world. I want to be with Hattie and her yeah. 11 children and her grandchildren. And I still think about this book with fondness, even though sometimes it was a little bit of a hard read. But it's 2023 and that was 2012. I friend. know. Where have you been? Is <laughs> <laughs> in hiding. No, I have not been in hiding. I um it just this book just took a really, really yeah. long time. And and fortunately, other things happen. Like I've been writing some nonfiction along the mm-hmm. way and things like that. But this book was just vexing. And it just took an extraordinarily long time to sort of become anything. Um, and then it kept changing what it wanted to be. And it was very defiant and recalcitrant. <laughs> and we had a lot of fights and we were in a really antagonistic relationship and we had to heal. I mean, it really was just like a whole journey with this book. We're now in the 1980s. We're in Philadelphia and also a tiny town called Bonaparte, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And I love these characters. And I'm going to keep it kind of tight. You do have a wider cast, but I'm going to keep it to Ava and her son Toussaint. And Toussaint's dad, Cass, mm-hmm. and Ava's mom, mm-hmm. Duchess. Mm-hmm. And and there are lots of folks who come in and out of their lives, mm-hmm. but they're sort of the core four. And we meet yeah. them when Ava and Toussaint are in crisis. Essentially, they're in a homeless shelter. They're they're being thrown out, and they're, they're in a homeless shelter. And we're in Philadelphia in 86. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's, okay. well, it's it's so it's two years. So it's first it's 85 and then it's 86. Okay. How did we get here? Because there's a lot happening in these opening pages. And there's one thing that I'm not going to, there is like a little introduction that we're, we're going to let readers find. Ah. But I, I just, I really love Ava and I really love Toussaint mm-hmm. and I really love Duchess. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering how we got these folks. Well, so I'll so I'll start with the easy one. Um, the easy one is Duchess, who just kind of like appeared. I'm so resistant to writers using really mystical terms about their characters. You know, like, oh, they just kind of... But oddly, she just sort of did. She had this voice in this way, and it was kind of who she was. Even before I understood what her name was or what her role was, I knew that there was this kind of itinerant, you know, former blues singer of of middling success, you know, which she sort of admits at a certain point, like, well, it wasn't that great, you know, but she loved it. And she just sort of had that voice. And, and, and it was, it was a puzzling, she was a gift, I think, from the writing universe, you know, and I, before I even know what to do with her, like, I didn't exactly know where she fit or what Mm -hmm. she was supposed to be, but there she was. So she was the easiest of them. I think Ava was, was a, I, I, when you asked me earlier, like, where have you been for these last 11 years? It's Ava's fault. She okay. was the holdup. Okay. <laughs> Jokes aside, she just, she just was a really difficult character and she's, she's not easy. And she's, she's not easy in the way that Hattie wasn't easy, I think. 
So one of the things that wasn't a struggle with Hattie, but was with Ava was that I, I judged her a lot. Like I judged her. I didn't like her. I was mad at her. And so I had to sort of have an attitude adjustment in order to be able to write her in a way that, yes, she's flawed. Yes, she's difficult, but she is still sort of fully human. And it took a long time to do that. And it took a long time to find a voice that I could inhabit that would that would sort of allow her to come across more fully on the page because her, her voice was just it was just squirrely. Sometimes I wonder if it still is, but I just it was really hard to get her. I don't think it's squirrely now. There were moments with Ava where, yeah, absolutely. She reminded me of Hattie. I'm not going <laughs> to not going to lie. <laughs> she, she did remind me of Hattie. But at the same time, her love for her son is really clear. And that's the thing that keeps her grounded. Even when she's making bad decisions, Mm -hmm. she's doing the best she can with what she has because of her child. Yeah. And I do think, you know, I'm sort of bracing myself for some of the reviews and some of the coverage where people are going to have feelings about Ava's capacity to be a mother, because we do, we judge. And you saw this with Hattie. We, We all saw it with Hattie, with some of the reviews, people were like, well, she's just a bad mother. And it's like, ah. It's a little more complicated than that. And I needed The Unsettled. I needed this novel. Mm -hmm. I needed someone to take on the 80s. I feel like we're revisiting that moment. We're reliving so much of that right now. And I needed someone to sort of sit down with the art and the characters and the language and say, hey, wait a minute. Do you see what is happening here? We are just repeating ourselves. And there's a lot. There's a lot in The Unsettled. (laughs) I think that's also why it took so long. Like, you know, I mean, I don't, I never want to be the sort of writer who's kind of writing from the top down. For me, that Mm -hmm. doesn't work. Like, like, oh, I have a theme. It's the 80s or it's racism or it's socioeconomic despair, you know, and then sort of trying to invent these characters that are sort of moving around in whatever situation. So the, the, there is a lot that's kind of large and beyond me, I think, in the book. And part of what took so long also was was really figuring out how to like locate that stuff inside of the characters so that it was a book about people in situations, not a book about a situation in which there happened to be some people. And so that, I think, also took a really long time because so many of these issues are so big and so many of them are so close to me. You know, I mean, I grew up in the 80s, like, you know, I had a kind of unstable childhood like i so so a lot of these things are are really close and really meaningful and powerful to me personally so there was also that task of finding enough distance to be able to make these people artful people who are believable who can contain all of this stuff but who are not kind of marionettes that i'm sort of moving around through history and through in some ways my own story it, my own story is not that but there are overlaps. And so it was, it was, yeah, it was really difficult to find distance. And overlap is one thing. Overlap, yeah, there are slight overlaps with your actual experience. But I just want to be clear that this is not autofiction. It is not. That this is an act of imagination, that this is a way of setting us as readers mm-hmm. in a world that is really familiar. But honestly, when I do the math, I'm a little horrified to realize how long ago the 80s were. And it's like, we've come a full generation. And yet we're sitting mm-hmm. in almost the exact same place we were. And I'm like, wait a minute, what happened 
to progress? What happened to change? And in some ways we have made some progress. We have been able to change in some ways, but it's really striking to me as someone who was also an adolescent in the eighties, like a lot of that is still kind of in the air and to see people not get it. It's very interesting. Like, you know, we're all sort of obsessed with the former guy, as I like to call him, but, but like, honestly, I mean, those Reagan years put so much in motion and, and so much of what is now is coming from that or is mirroring that. And, and that I think is, and we sort of seem to skip over the eighties somehow, or we have these kind of weird narratives around the eighties that are just kind of like cocaine, disco, you know, stock market, these kinds of things, which sure there was that stuff, but there was also this kind of intense political and social stuff that was going on that is absolutely like laid foundation and ground for where we are now. And in fact, and that's maybe even a misstatement. It kind of was that. Do you know what I mean? Like there's just it, it's a mirror, actually. It's entirely a mirror because the other thing is too, like Bonfire of the Vanities has not actually aged well. Like it, it right. is like it reads almost like a satire, the other day. right? I hadn't read it. I haven't reread it, but I Ooh. watched the movie again and I was just like, Ooh. yeah, like it did not. Mm-mm. Nope. Not at all. Mm-mm. Not at all. And and even some of the devices in American Psycho obviously have become sort of larger pervading pieces of the culture and people use sort of ideas from that, like brand names and all that kind of thing. And again, like, wow, the eighties are. I mean, we laid the groundwork for privatization and closing state hospitals and all of these things where we just took, we pulled the rug out from ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Willingly. 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 We wait, we laid the groundwork for the opioid epidemic. We laid out the groundwork for how to respond to the opioid oh. epidemic. You know, I mean, like, like crack, this is sort of decimation of that. You know, I mean, all of these things. It was like, and and we also laid a kind of weird psychic groundwork mm-hmm. in which it became easier and easier to sort of say, like, oh yes, all of these horrors are happening, but we'll just kind of look over here. And I think like we, and that's the thing that's existed in the United States for a long time. But in the kind of very modern context, right. we really laid a kind of groundwork for like how to handle this sort of decimation and catastrophic events on our fellow citizens, you know what I mean? And, and on, on our brethren really, and our, our sistren and, and how to just kind of manage to sort of look another way. And, and the, and the other way we're looking is often around, like we're looking, we're looking for money. We're looking for a leg up. We're looking for all of these things. And in the eighties also, you know, speaking of bonfire, the vanities, et cetera, right? Like it was like, that's, you know, wealth became a thing. Do you remember how like in the 60s and 70s, I wasn't born in the 60s, but I remember when I was a kid, like, so like in the late 70s, like early, early 80s, like extreme wealth was like a thing that weirdos had. Do you yes. remember this? Yes, like, it I, wasn't, do. I do. It wasn't like a general aspiration. Mm-hmm. And for much of like what I can remember, even watching older movies, like it was like, oh, there were these really rich people and they were also weird and eccentric and regular people weren't like that. There was, it's very interesting, like even the way that we conceptualize like, like wealth and our relationship to it is totally different. Exactly. Because CEO pay changed with Jack Welch in the eighties and GE. And that's the moment that is absolutely the tipping point where suddenly the inequality goes off the charts and we're becoming Argentina, you know, it's just, it's wild. It's absolutely wild. And we've been sort of moving along this path. And we also 
have as a culture this idea that somehow if you are not successful, you it's because of a moral failing. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I love about reading you, and because this is something, okay, pagan baby, totally raised as a pagan. You were raised <laughs> as a Pentecostal. I was yeah, raised exactly. Unitarian. <laughs> Like Unitarians, it's coffee and donuts in the woods, right? Like <laughs> uh, pagan baby. <laughs> but you do wrestle with faith. You do wrestle yeah. with belief, right? Yeah. And and it is, I mean, church, but also systems of belief, right? Yeah. Throughout the African-American community. Yeah. I mean, certainly Asian-American communities, there's a huge mm-hmm. now Christian piece of it in a sort of evangelical Christian kind of way mm-hmm. that was not part of my story at all. Like I said, Unitarian Coffee and Donuts in the Woods. But, you know, you do it in a really modern way. You studied with Marilyn Robinson Mm. at Iowa. And Mm. I mean, if I think of Gilead really is, housekeeping and Gilead are sort of the two big touchstones for me out of her work. But she does a similar thing where the faith is there. It's Mm -hmm. clear that she has a connection to Mm -hmm. whatever system you want to call it. Mm. But you wrestle with it. You wrestle with it the way Baldwin wrestled with it. You wrestle with it in a way where you're like, I know this is part of the world. Toussaint Mm -hmm. has this interaction with a local pastor and Ava does not like that woman. Wow, does she not like that woman? And yet, (laughs) oh no, she doesn't. She wants no part of it. But she doesn't say to her kid, you can't do this. She doesn't. and, And in fact, there are some connecting points later. But, you know, for some people, faith is a really easy decision. It's it's yeah. not necessarily something that they have to question. It's something that yeah. they were raised with and they continue to do and they raise their families. Mm. As well. And if that's what you do, that's fine. Mm. But you wrestle. You yeah. wrestle with it in both books. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I just, can we talk about that for a second? Because I'm not even sure where to begin. I don't. Either am how I. you wrestle with it. <laughs> <laughs> Neither am I in some ways. I mean, I think, so I was raised, I'll I'll kind of go back to a little bit personal stuff. So I you was raised Pentecostal, very religious family. My mother remains a very religious person. My grandparents were extraordinarily religious, et cetera. I left the church when I was like in my teens. And then I went through this period where I wanted to be like a sophisticated, you know, modern person who was just like, no, I don't believe in God. I'm totally an atheist. Like, I don't like any of these things. It's all, you're all sheep, you know, the whole thing, right? And it, it just didn't stick. I tried to make it stick, but didn't stick. So kind of going back to the book, I think that that what has remained, you know, you mentioned James Baldwin, you know, one of the things that he talked about, you know, I mean, he was rail against the Christian church, like just, you know, and at the same time, he was very much marked by it. And, and he would talk about how he was very much marked by it. And he wrote it about it in essays, et cetera. Not to mention like the prose itself is often like sermonic and soaring and the whole thing. Right. So I, I think what I have, found is that is that I believe in belief and I think that my characters often believe in belief in what we don't know right like like I don't think that Ava thinks too much about God but I do think that she thinks about things like a homeland sacred larger than life godlike figures who in her estimation often happen to be men I think that she thinks about those things a lot. And I think she believes in those things and she seeks those things. So I think of it as a kind of religious belief, sort of secularized. Um, Whereas her son, Tucson, is very much attracted to like actual belief in God. And like what, and I think 
And I think it's almost as though his mother is an obstacle for him being able to believe in God in some way that he would want to. And then there's other characters, you know, she has an ex-husband, Ava, I mean, who, you know, I don't know what, I don't, I don't know if I think he's a true believer or so much as a person who sort of uses God as a kind of weapon or as a kind of, you know, as a kind of bludgeon or a sort of tool of manipulation. But in any case, I think belief that is either directly religious or quasi-religious in as much as it takes on the enormity of religious belief is a really big part of this book. And I think was a part of Hattie too. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think Ava's ex-husband, honestly, it's both. I think he does have a deep faith, at least my experience of the character. He has a deep faith, but also he is using it as a tool to maintain power in his in his world. I mean, dude's not a good guy. But, you know, Duchess, Ava's mother, I mean, for her, faith is what she knows about the land that she's from. She's born and raised in Bonaparte. She came back after her sort of mm-hmm. middling career on the road. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she talks about having the deed to her land and protecting mm-hmm. her land and not selling her land. And for her, that belief is the thing that keeps her going. It is. That Absolutely. even though Bonaparte is is becoming much smaller because there's a, a town mm-hmm. next door that's encroaching and basically taking all of the land. And of course, people have had to sell because they don't have resources. There's a moment where Duchess is talking about having paid the taxes on her store, which has mm-hmm. been burned down mm-hmm. by nefarious neighbors. And she's like, no, you can't take it from me. I'm going to go. And she pulls together the money and she goes and she pays the tax bill. Because that's where her belief system keeps her. She's just like, you can't take this from me. And I get that I don't like the rules, but I am going to pay my tax bill. Yeah. And then you cannot do anything. And, then and I just, I love that about her where she's just like, nope, yeah. nope. nope. not going to do it. There I mean, are other I, things about her that are complicated, but that one moment. Where that I'm one's like, clear, right? Yeah. It's really clear. She, and I think, I think Bonaparte, like with, with regard to thinking about religion a little mm-hmm. bit, like Bonaparte is both, Christian and not. It's a little bit sort of like old ways of belief. Like mm-hmm. it's it's a little bit pre-Christian in its belief yeah. system, which Ava does have a little bit of it. And mm-hmm. so I think more than being, I think she doesn't think about God too much, but I think she also, if she were, she's real skeptical of Christianity as a system. Like she's not into that. And Duchess has this kind of syncretized belief system, which mm-hmm. I think was what mm-hmm. Bonaparte had. And then, of course, there's the directly Christian. I I won't get into her role too much, right, but right. you know, there's a there's a there's a pastor who helps the family mm-hmm. a lot, which you, you right. who you whom you already Pastor Phil, whom you already alluded to, and how Ava's really not having her. And that woman is a very Christian woman, I think, in the best sense of things. Yeah. Like I think she's a true yeah. believer in the best sense. I also love the image of her just sitting on the steps with a sandwich, waving her sandwich at people when they're passing by. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but it's her community and and the way she experiences community, it's not formal. It's not, I have a role, but it's just like, I'm eating my sandwich. You're walking by, you're my neighbor. I am part of this place. Yeah. And, you know, Duchess is part of Bonaparte the way Ava has not yet found in Philadelphia, but is trying to find. I mean, she becomes part of this sort of household where, okay, let's call it communal living, but it's not, you know, no one's, it's just communal living. And everyone's raising their kids and growing garden, but they've also got, you know, a clinic for the community and, and they're just part of the world. But when I opened the book and I realized that we were sitting in Philadelphia, Mm-hmm. In 86, 88, mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. there, 85, I couldn't help but think of the move bombing, which happened in May of 85. And John Edgar Wideman, 
if you haven't read it, Philadelphia Fire is an amazing, amazing yeah, it's book. really great. I know you've read it, just in case for listeners to have, but and there's a new edition with an introduction by Imani Perry that is spectacular. Oh, I didn't and, know that. Yeah, there was oh, I have a very beat up old edition. I own two editions of this book because of that introduction. Philadelphia had a black mayor who said, "Go ahead to the police, mm-hmm. drop this bomb." Mm-hmm. Literally, there is a firebombing in a major American city. Mm-hmm. Countless people die. Countless houses are burned to the ground. We find out, what, last year, the year before, that some of the bones of MOVE members were in the, the basement. Children. Universally- so children. Were children okay. to make it just a little bit more horrifying. Right. In a basement, in a building at the University of Pennsylvania. I don't think, and especially, too, the way that some of the community responds to Ava and Cass and, and their house mm-hmm. and their household, this is in the air, right? This this is, you are not in a place like Philadelphia where this giant tragedy has happened mm-hmm. and not have it sort of in the back of your brain when you have new neighbors sure. fixing up a house sure. and living off the land, sure. right? They're trying to live off the land and whatnot. Yeah. How much of that was sitting in the back of your brain while you were working on this book. Yeah. I mean, it definitely was, you know, I mean, I was a kid when, when the bombing happened and I remember it very well. I remember the footage on the news and I remember the adults in my household who would have been my mother and my grandparents at that time. I remember understanding that, that, that they thought that this was very bad, just as I thought that it was very bad, but, but nobody, but we didn't talk about it. I don't think we've ever talked about it actually. So it was that said to say, so it was very much in my mind. And I, it's important to say that it, it isn't that, you know, there are, there are, mem- mech- move is still an extant group. Um, one of the people who was in the house that was bombed is still alive. Um, she just got out of prison not very long ago in connection to, to her arrest at, at that time in the eighties. And it's just, it's a wound. I mean, it is, move is a real wound in Philadelphia, uh, where I'm from, in case people don't know I'm from Philadelphia. Um, and so I didn't, you know, I didn't presume to tell that story, but, but I think what it has left in me were a lot of questions about sort of what happened there, why it happened. And I'm a writer. So therefore, you know, my imagination decides that it's, you know, it kind of keeps turning it over and turning it over. And so what the book, I think, I think ARC, which is a group that, that Ava and Toussaint become involved in. Um, I think that that group is like a way to ask a series of questions about what happens if a group of Black people try to create an autonomous group that is running on a very different economic basis that is not, you know, sort of participating in the usual kind of market economy, et cetera, et cetera, who are trying to sort of have some kind of rules that are their own rules, who want to extend something to a larger community. What does that look like? And and what what are the challenges to a community like that? What are the internal challenges? Because not everybody's perfect, you know. But it's also inside, right? Um, and also, what are the external challenges? Like, what are the, what are the racial pressures? What are the economic pressures? All of these kinds of things. Like, what what could happen in a place like that? And then also, why so often when a group of people try to create a community like that, why does it meet state violence? Like, why is that? Why is that almost inevitably? the the place where you end up. Um, and so there were a lot of questions. And I think, you know, the the other thing I think is that is that Bonaparte, which is the, the sort of other pole in the book, is another sort of attempt at a black utopia, very different, 
um, with very different motives and motivations, a very different kind of leader and leadership. So it has a very different trajectory. Nonetheless, they're sort of mirror images in a way, like almost like like almost like the Philadelphia stuff is a dark mirror of 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 the of the stuff that happens in Bonaparte. And I think too, you know, g- going back to to thinking about move and what happened there, you know, I mean, it, it's super complicated because the other reality is is that move weren't great neighbors. People didn't people, you know, it was it was hard to be their neighbor, you know. Now the means by which having difficult neighbors translates into murdering them and 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 blowing up a city block <laughs> you know needless to say right like i say anything about that but i mean but but so i was also interested in like what happens in a community where you have this kind of fractious relationship between the people that live there and the people that come there what does it mean for a black community to kind of be like well hey you know these neighbors really kind of suck and they do this that and the other thing and for there to be first no response, and then the response is an outsized violence that also that also victimizes them. Like what what is that? You know, like like where are your rights as sort of a citizen in a neighborhood? And like so, it's about it's about what happens to the people in the house, but also what happens in the neighborhood. Like what is this whole dynamic? It's really fraught. It's really complicated. What I hope is that. I don't think there are many clear heroes in this book. You know, I think the leader of our cast is right a lot of, about a lot of things, but he's also a real bastard, you know? So, so it's, so it's complicated, you know? Very charismatic. Mm-hmm. Definitely has his moments though, where patriarchy is his friend. He's got some very definite ideas about what women should be doing and where, mm-hmm. and, and yet at the same time, the way he comes across, it's very easy to see. Mm-hmm how people would follow him and and believe in him and want. I mean, part of what gets me about both books, but especially in The Unsettled, is, you know, you've sort of moved from, well, let me start with you and I both grew up in the Northeast, right? And there's this idea that somehow there's more freedom in the North, there's less racism, there's less this, there's less that, right? That somehow we're doing it right Right, compared to the South. Right. Right. And, you know, Hattie obviously centers around the Great Migration and and how that informed people. And here we are in the 80s. And it's kind of like you've gone from this sort of hopeful moment in our in our world and our perception of the world, right? Where the idea is you could go to a better place to better take care of your family and yourself. And, to, and then the 80s just kind of wipes that out for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, we're sitting in these places, right? North, south, these polarities, north, mm-hmm. south hopeful, super not hopeful. We really do tell ourselves stories, right? It's all a form of mythology. It's all, these are colliding beliefs. Mm -hmm. And it brings us back to you believe in belief. And Mm -hmm. oh man, some of, some of the choices, the characters make, and it, they are their choices. They are absolutely their choices. And there's some stuff that also just purely from storytelling point, I mean, you and I were talking about it before we hit record, but Mm -hmm. There are some moments in this book, too, where you do stuff with story where I was like, yep, this is awesome. This is great. (laughs) Because why should we lose the joy of story, though? I mean, we have to record this stuff, right? Like, we have to talk about it. We have to record it. Patty didn't want to talk about anything. Duchess doesn't want to talk about anything except when she does. And it's that generational (laughs) thing where you're like, hi, I would like the stories, please. I would like, we need to have this recorded and even if maybe some of the details are hard there is joy in holding yeah. on to the story yeah 
Yeah. And there's joy in places that are unexpected. I mean, like we were talking a little bit about before, before we started, you know, it's folks make all kind of choices in this book. <laughs> they do. I make they all do. kind of choices. <laughs> some of which we could really, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> look I might scans, have a couple you know? of times. I might um, but it's interesting, you know, like I think like a character like Ava, for example, who gets involved in this group with this man who's a lot of things, um, charismatic, et cetera, also violent, also there's a lot of things. One of the things I was interested in is 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 to think about what joy or a good life or a fulfillment looks like if it is outside of the ways in which we have kind of agreed that those things should look like, like, this is what happiness looks like. This is what, you know, joy looks like. And, you know, we have a little bit of, 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 there's a little bit of a spectrum, Mm -hmm. but essentially, you know, the, the, the parameters are fairly fiercely guarded actually, um, and very well defined. And so, but these people, I, even though I think this is a hard book and I think people have a, a hard time in many ways, I think that there is also this sense of which people have absolute autonomy absolute agency and they make choices that make them feel good or feel like they're sort of a part of something or feel like they found what they were looking for. I mean, that's certainly the case with Ava when she, you know, when she kind of gets involved with Ark, like she finds what she was looking for. She left her home, which was a certain kind of utopic sort of situation, a failing one, but in any case, led by these two, with these two enormously larger than life figures, you know, her stepfather and her mother. And then she kind of gets to, to the North and she wanders in the wilderness, you know, that's what she does. And she does, she can't find anything to sort of grasp onto. She can't find anything that feels like home. She can't find anything that feels like it means something to her. And then she does. And we might say, well, that's a bad thing to have found. I don't know. What I don't know, you know, it, it's 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 not what I would have chosen. It might not be what you would have chosen. It may not be what a lot of of people watching, listening would choose, but it is nonetheless something that is enormous and means something to her and lends meaning to her life. And so, the the guess one of the larger things that I think about a lot is the ways in which for poor people, for people of color, there is this sense in which there's some goal that you're supposed to have, right? Like you're supposed to, you know, want to become this kind of bourgeois, whatever. And that would mean that you had turned your life around or become successful or climbed out of poverty or whatever, like all those terms, you know, in reality, for many people, maybe it's not that at all. And, and I think you know, if, if we could just even expand just a little bit, our sort of notion of what a fulfilled life might look like and therefore what our expectations are of people who we have decided are not leading good lives or who are failing. I I think that a lot would change. We just need, there's just more breadth is needed. Mothers are also more frequently on the receiving end of that judgment than fathers without a doubt. I mean, there are, and yes, it is a primal relationship, but we have also created this mythology around motherhood and mothers mm-hmm. and you know some folks shouldn't parent straight up like yep. just shouldn't and this idea that somehow you become a more fulfilled human being or a better <laughs> human this is my favorite part of the trip you become a better person if you have children <laughs> wow that's <Yeah. laughs> 
Okay. Okay. <laughs> we, we actually have empirical evidence that in some cases that really super does not happen, but okay. the case. Yeah, totally, let's, right? let's, let's work with that mythology, right? So all of these things we tell ourselves, the eighties, we were, we were barbarians. I mean, we're still kind of barbarians, but like, it was really like all of these moments where the men sort of behave in a certain way and they're just like, right. their expectations are, and there's still some folks who would like it to continue that way. And it's like, well, actually, mm-hmm. if we're going to evolve as a culture and a society and as a mm-hmm. people, language evolves, yeah. roles evolve. Yeah. We don't have to keep doing the same thing simply because that's what we did before. Yeah. yeah. And that's the I piece, mean, you know, this weaponized like, nostalgia. We're not still saying thou. Just, yeah, just right? a dumb example. You know? <laughs> yeah. I grew up not that far from Plymouth Plantation, y'all. I mean, (laughs) and did they cast me as Sarah Alden in the Pilgrim play in the third grade? Oh, yes, they did. Yes. Because I was the tallest kid in my class. I'm good not doing a Pilgrim play ever again, but yeah, we're in no danger of that happening. But at the same time, like I still I was going to say, is there, it. I'm like, have you been getting invitations or no, you know, strangely enough, I think I'll stick with the book thing. <laughs> But again, like all of these pieces that we're talking about, right? Like who gets to make decisions mm-hmm. about their own lives? Who, who gets to make decisions about their children's lives? Mm-hmm. Who gets to make decisions about where they live and how they, you know, mm-hmm. and yes, please don't be bad neighbors. We're, no one's advocating for being bad neighbors, especially when mm-hmm. you live in a very tight space and yeah. you really have to learn how to mm-hmm. literally be a good neighbor. But the emotional payoff mm-hmm. of the unsettled So the first time I've read it twice now. And the first time I read it, I read it in a single sitting because it had been too long and Hattie's great, but I needed something new. I didn't want to put it down because I needed to know what was happening to Ava and Duchess the most, honestly, because I was curious to see where that was going to go. And then the second time I read it and I let myself sit with the discomfort because I felt really bad for Ava more often than not. And I felt really bad for her kid. Yeah. Because he's trying to puzzle out what's going on yeah. with his mom. And he's 11. And 11 year olds really, they don't know. They're very great, but they don't know a lot. And, and here's this kid trying to, again, yeah. what does home mean? Mm-hmm. What does family mean? Mm-hmm. What is community? Like, and so I had two very different reading experiences with yeah, the same yeah. story. Oh, that's really interesting. And it's great. I highly, listen, if you have time to read it twice, highly recommend doing that. (laughs) But really, I just, I was so curious to know sort of where you'd been. And I like, you've just done this big piece for the New York Times book section on faith Mm -hmm. and and how slave narratives are a form of prophetic Mm -hmm. writing, which Mm -hmm. if you haven't read it, go back, read it. It's online. Mm -hmm. But I see a lot of your nonfiction work popping Mm -hmm in this mm-hmm. book. And it's partially because you've been writing more essays sort of and putting them out into the world and whatnot, mm-hmm. but there's some stuff that's burbling. I mean, you've been writing about class all along, you know, you've been writing about voice in lots of different ways yeah. all along and also mm-hmm. ambition. Yeah. And here's the thing. So Cass has an ambition that people might recognize, you know, mm-hmm. property community. Mm-hmm. Ava's ambitions are different. And I think she's going to be judged a little more harshly for it. And ambition, women and ambition, right? Like it's yeah. still a sore point for yeah. some folks. And I think, and it's interesting. I mean, she, her ambitions are, are are quite different. I don't think that she has so much a will to power as she has a, as she has a will to 
to be near power and to keep power moving. Right. You know? Right. She's and she's very interested in that. And that's a hard thing to say, right? Because it's a it's a hard thing because you know, people could say, like, well, why doesn't she want her own power? But that is her own power. You know, like that is her own power, which she has wants enormously. And I think that she's also in a way that she perhaps wouldn't say, I think it's just ingrained in her. I think that she also is interested in legacy, you know, and she, she doesn't, as her mother, Duchess is interested in legacy. And, and so, and the legacy is about, it's about material things, sure. Like actual land, you know, that you would pass on to someone. But I think it's also, I think the legacy is also something um, is also kind of psychic and spiritual. It's about, it's about safety. It's about, um, it's about autonomy. It's about, it's about passing on to people some, some way in which they might become self-realized or self-actualized or at base, not afraid for their own sort of physical safety and also for their kind of intellectual and spiritual safety. And both of these women, the sort of, you know, the, the main female characters of the book, well, really the main characters of the book, they're both really interested in notions of legacy. And I think that that's also something that we don't think about as much, or or rather, I, sh- I guess another way to say that is like, that's something that we sort of often attribute or, or, or we say, oh, those considerations are sort of to like rich white people who have a lot of land to give, you know what I mean? Or, or want to go to Harvard, you know, <laughs> whatever, like these kind you know, but that, that legacy is this, is only this sort of very, I don't know, lofty, like an estate or something like that. Right. And we don't grant the idea that all kinds of people want to pass something to their children and will work very hard and do nearly anything to be able to do that. Or that legacy only belongs to a certain strata. That legacy doesn't even exist. Exactly. If you're not part of a certain class. And I find that extraordinary. I mean, you meet people who maybe have one photograph. Mm-hmm. And I say this as someone who was like frighteningly documented as a child, because apparently mm-hmm. that's what my parents did. Less so for my brother, who's a little younger. But like we were those children. There are photo albums where you're like, okay, that's not that interesting. Right. But when you meet people, though, who like have two photographs mm-hmm. or one sort of real focused memory or experience or something, like it's a very different Mm-hmm. experience but it is no less legitimate simply because yep. there's a little less documentation and that's the thing it's like almost you know do you have your right do you have your paperwork yeah can you yeah. prove yeah well i'm sitting Whatever in front of, is, i'm, I'm sitting in front of you <laughs> that your family is like a legitimate and valid right? family right like, are you you know and and the and i think you know there's there's always also this interesting thing about about there being some sort of a record. Hey, there's it's impossible for for there to be a, a a record of any family, right? Like every member of that family on any given day will have a different version of every event, right? Um, but but in this in this family, like these people in this book, there's a you know the, all the all the rely all the narrators are unreliable. So it's like who like what is what is the actual story? And there's something about you know, we would keep kind of going back to this thing about belief and the series that I'm writing mm-hmm. for the times and, you know, it, the, the kind of, and having grown up in this very religious environment, 
in which the Bible was like very, very sort of central to everything about right. my upbringing. Right. And, um, and so, you know, rejected it, et cetera, et cetera, but then kind of came back, not as a, not as a sort of literal document that's supposed to tell me what right. to do, right. but, but as a kind of repository of wisdom, but that gets to wisdom through these sort of like odd, sometimes paradoxical, just juxtaposing narratives. Like there's an mm-hmm. accumulation of things that, that, that almost seem to contradict each other that don't, um, and that and that that sort of that accumulation is the way that we sort of arrive at mm-hmm. meaning. If 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 we were if I for me that if, if I were to say that there is meaning in biblical literature, I think that's what its meaning is. Right. That's what constitutes its meaning. And so, in many ways, I think Hattie was like that. You know, all of these different stories about this woman um, who can only partially be glimpsed and cannot ever be fully understood, and she's not going to tell you anything. Right. So. So that you know what I mean. So there's all these narratives that sort of add up to some idea of what she might be or who she might be. And I think the same thing, though, of course, structurally it's very different and there aren't as many voices. I think that there's a similar action kind of happening in this book where there is no definitive record. All the narrators are unreliable. And so there is perhaps an accumulation of these people's experiences and voices. Mm -hmm that leads us to something that feels like it might be a truth or a a thing that is real. Which is why we need to capture the plurality of voices. Mm. Mm. Right. Like that's what our art should be doing. Yeah. Our art should be saying to us, Hey, we all have a place and yeah, you may Mm. remember something differently. It doesn't mean one negates the other. Right. Right. Like, I mean, there's, there's a moment too in Ava's history with, um, her dad and when that happens and I'm being absolutely vague on purpose, but (laughs) when it happens, suddenly a lot of Ava made a lot of sense to me Mm -hmm. when you really, and I know, you know what I'm talking about, but it it is that moment where you're like, Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. There are like, Ava may not want to give up her story all the way, Mm -hmm. but she's going to. And same thing. Like Duchess doesn't really want to give up all of her story but she's going to, I mean, Mm -hmm. there are people who try to control their own stories. Right. But ultimately the only thing you can do is be a person in the world. Like, I mean, that's that's all you can do is be a person in the world. And hopefully you have a better go of it than not, but Mm -hmm. you can't live a life where you don't have the good and the bad. Like you need the two Mm -hmm. to exist. You do. And I don't think you, you know, you don't, I think I think surviving the world is a lot harder without a sense of that kind of multiplicity and without a sense of like that paradox and contradiction. Like if you if you spend a life trying to find the ways in which it's all going to make sense, it's just you're just banging your head against a wall. It just seems like a great big recipe for enormous amounts of of frustration. I was even thinking about um, land is a big, as we've talked about, like land is a really big thing in this book. And the land that is Bonaparte, um, you know, is, um, I, you know, I was, I was also really, you know, there are all these kind of black settlements or black utopic, um, attempts or all black towns or et cetera, et cetera, that cropped up all through the reconstruction, et cetera, et cetera. Some of which lasted, some of which didn't. Um, so there's a long kind of historical precedent of all of that sort of stuff and it of course like crops up in in books too like you know um eatonville and their eyes are watching god or something like that 
Um, but in any case, you know, one of the complications even of that, of like of like a, a black homeland in America is that it's not it's not our own land either. Right. You know, it, it, it's it's there were some indigenous people that were living there, you know. So, right. So there's right. This, there's just sort of endless complications around like home and like home that is improvised and, and what has been lost or sacrificed in order for someone else to make home. You know, I mean, it's very there's a there's a place in um and 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 actually existed, uh, and it's called the Kingdom of the Happy Land. And the Kingdom of the Happy Land, mm-hmm. I know, right? <laughs> say say what now? <laughs> yeah, I'm just having a moment with the, I, I'm just having a moment with the place name, but okay, <laughs> exactly. The Kingdom of the Happy Land, and the Kingdom of the Happy Land existed from from roughly like 1870 ish to by by the turn of the 20th century, it was gone, and it was um, sort of at the very sort of the tail end of this, at the basically the end of the Civil War. There were a group of emancipated enslaved people who kind of left Mississippi and they had this kind of leader guy, um, well, brothers. They wanted to find a place where they could be. And so they sort of wander around and they wander through Alabama and up through Georgia and all these places. And they end up, um, um, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll make it short. They end up basically on the, on the, in, in Appalachia, uh, sort of on the North Carolina, South Carolina border. And they end up like getting some land from first they there's a there's a white woman there who owned many, many, many acres, but like all of the it's the end of the Civil War. So all the people that she had enslaved that were working the land, they're all gone. So it's just her and like her son or something like this. So everything's falling apart, et cetera. So first these folks agree to like work the land and like in exchange for food and et cetera, but they become more and more invaluable in this situation. They, they you know, they have a plan. <laughs> and so eventually. They enter into an agreement with this white woman by which they buy 180 acres of land from her for a dollar an acre. And they essentially like form a settlement and it exists for many, many years. It's, it's utopic in its kind of ideas there, except for the sort of, because there's also literally a king and a queen in the, in the. In How the, many people were living in the community? It's so much of the records of it and have been lost. Oh, okay. So the okay. estimations that I've read go anywhere from 200 to 400. Uh, that's not nothing. I mean, that's, that's not nothing, actually right? like a town. Like, if you think about the history of America, right, and these small settlements and everything, four hundred people in eighteen whatever—that's even even two hundred. Like, no, it's not nothing because it's not like you're walking down to Home Depot and buying the supplies exactly. to build a house, and then you exactly. don't go to the A and P to pick mm-hmm. up dinner. Like, it's a it's a very conscious thing you have to. Do. Plus, it you're is. also trying and they to not own get the murdered. land in common. Right. They, so people would build cabins and things on it, but the, the land was in common, like resources were being shared. They they did subsistence farming. But they also sold things. Those were being shared. They were teamsters, which then meant was like a term really like driving a team of like a horse and buggy team of horses to do delivery. So they were kind of like, you know, they were sort of like 19th century truck drivers, you know, so they make all this money, not a lot of money, but they make money. There's a long history, but then, you know, and and that's a very beautiful experience. You know, it fell apart for various reasons because of reconstruction, you know, like everything did in the South by, by that turn of the century is all. And also a railroad comes, all kinds of things happen. Right. Also their own naivete and things that are happening inside the group. Point being, I guess, two points. One is that there is, that the, even that land, I mean, it was Cherokee land, you know? And so there are some Cherokees still like up in the foothills a little further who, 
who, and it was Cherokee land and they were all removed in the Indian Removal Act in 1830. And they all walk the trail of tears and then it becomes this white woman's land. And then, it you know, so it's like, there is no, you know, I don't, I don't sort of have an answer to, to any of that, but just this simply just to say that this sort of like endless complications of, of being and of legacy and of place. One of the things that I hope that the book does is sort of like, just ask some questions about it because I don't know what that is and I don't know what to do with it. And I don't know even how to think about it except to sort of wonder about it and ask questions about it. I liked the questions you were asking, even <laughs> when they made me uncomfortable. So yes, you did all the things you set out to do. I'm wondering though, do we think Toussaint is okay? Like, do we think he grew up to find his place in the world or do you think he had a rougher go of it than some? I think he probably had a rougher go, but I think he's okay. Yeah, that's, that's sort of what I think. Like, I don't I don't think it was easy. He doesn't seem to me to be a lost soul. I didn't think so. I just, you know, I just thought he was going to have a rougher go of it than some. But, you know, ultimately, the book ends on a hopeful note, I think. I'm glad you think that sometimes I'm just like, what is is what I think a hopeful note, not what other people will think. is a hopeful OK, note. that's OK. I'm sorry. If there are people who think this book does not end on a hopeful note, that's weird. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's just weird. the arc is also so very compressed. I mean, you covered what 55 years in 12 tribes with Patty, yeah. like almost 60 years. And here we are sort of in this very, for you, compressed time frame. I mean, all of it back to your original, like the difficulty of, I was like, I don't know how, like, how do, I don't know how to, you know, like, how do I, how do I write? How do I write inside of these? Like what seemed to me to be, yes, very compressed confines um in terms of time and you know for for people who are who are watching or listening who might be right you know one of the other things i think that was a real struggle for mm -hmm. me was just, is is kind of managing the time you know yeah. like i i'm really good when you can sort of, sort of leap i'm like oh, i don't really care what happened in 1937 so we'll just go from 1923 to 1948 moving you know which yeah, is, yeah. that's my happy place you know right just, right right, right. <laughs> but this book really has to account much more almost certainly in the in the first half of the book, but both, I guess, but really in the first half of the book, almost a dailiness or at least a weekliness. And so like that was also, I think, a big, a big kind of struggle. It was a lot of relearning how to write anything, you know, any sort of myths that people have about, hey, you write one book and then you figure like, it, I, it was like I had never done any, I, it was like I'd never done it before. It was like, we had to relearn everything. Which hearing you say that is wild because that's not how the unsettled reads. Uh, it, that that's just not how it reads at all. I mean, I'm I'm listening to everything you've said about this being just a bear of a book, but for you, everything feels organic in I'm this glad. book. Even even when folks did things where I was like, oh no no, <laughs> I get very involved sometimes when I'm reading a book that's set up in a way mm. that I just connect. I just I connect with the language. Mm. I connect with the characters. Mm. I connect with the set. It just sometimes you get all of the things you want right. in a single book. Not always, but when you but do, sometimes you do. Right? Oh, it's and it's the it's best, glorious. Feeling. It is it's so really good. Something. It's <laughs> transcendent. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And I'm really hoping that when readers come to the unsettled, yeah, it is. It is in some ways a different reading experience from Hattie. But again, like there are some things that you've sort of been scratching at. Yeah, across your work, not just in the fiction, but across your work. Anyone who's yeah. read your essays, anyone who's read yeah. some of the journalism you've done, it all 
sits on a continuum, right? That is you. The same in your it's work. the same questions. I think yeah. it's just I think it's always just the same questions. Yeah. Like like explored in some different way or some other right. some shiny thing catches my eye and I'm like, oh yeah. I, I can ask the question that way with these people. Or I can ask the question that way. But it's always, you know, it's always the same, it's always the same question. And I think I'm so grateful for the time. You know, yeah. I mean, I I, yeah. you know, in the middle of writing the book, it was taking so darn long. I was like, but like it it needed the time that it took because I think it just it just needed it needed the time. Do I dare ask if you've started thinking about the next thing? Am I jinxing it? (laughs) Yeah, you know, I may have. I'm I'm not going to say anything about it. Yeah, no, no, no. That's but but I I may have. It's just like a fantasy, like something I think about in the shower sometimes. You know what I mean? Or like or like when I wake up, like there's nothing. I'm nowhere near any language to bring right. to bear on this thing. And I want, right. you know, which is always sort of a challenge that like between, but you know what I mean? Cause you have, yeah. I was at some talk and Jennifer Egan called it a, this is a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. She called it a voice hangover, you know, where it's oh, just sort of wow. like, like the voice from that book, you, like you're, you, you know, you, you know, you're somewhere else, you know, you're with different folks, you know, you need to, but it just, until you figure out either enough time has passed or you write your way in enough, there's this kind of hanging over, you know, mouth puppet that you just kind of keep sounding the same as the last one until you, until it doesn't. Yeah. No, you know what? I think writers in the UK have an easier time sometimes than writers in the U S audience. Why? Like I, I'm just thinking of Hillary Mantel or Jim Crace yeah. or, you know, I mean, people are just like, I'm just going to do whatever. And <laughs> the book comes out into the world and like, especially if I think of Hillary Mantel, right? Like there are a lot of readers obviously who know her for the Wolf Hall trilogy more than anything, but there's some early work. I oh, happen to love Place of Greater Safety. Of hers. Do you know her book Beyond Black? It's yes, astounding. It's one of my I favorite books. Book. Yeah. yeah. And it's so weird and it's yes. so other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. No. And I mean, she made me care about the French Revolution, which um, that's not really my thing, but Place of Greater <laughs> Safety is this epic, crazy novel about the French Revolution. And I could not, and it's like 700 pages. And it's like, yeah. yep, I'm here for every single page. Anyway, Ayana, thank you so much. This was so much fun, but you know, we could probably keep going for like another hour. And yes, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for this having has been me. Amazing. It, was so, it was such a great conversation. It just, it felt like we could have just been having coffee and having a chat. We can do that too. Excellent. (laughs) Ayanna Mathis, thank you so much. The Unsettled is out now. 12 Tribes of Hattie is in paperback. If you haven't read it, go pick it up. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.